0: In 2014, we all heard this:
1: The United States of America is changing its relationship with the people of Cuba.
0: But Cubans heard something else: A closing door, an end to their special status, and the race was on. How a 90-mile journey by sea became a 3,000-mile trip by land. Find Radio Ambulante on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. It's Tuesday. Which means it's time for a deep dive. Today we're talking with comedy writer Ashley Nicole Black. She covers it all. Race in comedy, improv in the Midwest, Scandal of the TV show, Savage Garden the Band. I promise there's a reason for that last one. Anyway, Ashley and I talked about how she left a PhD program at Northwestern to pursue improv. Yeah, you heard that right. A PhD led Ashley to improv. It took years of working away and applying to various gigs, but Ashley finally made it as a writer on a little TBS show called Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. Samantha saw some star quality in Ashley, and she made her a correspondent on the show last year. She won in the Outstanding Writing category for a variety special. And one thing I like a lot about this chat is that Ashley spent a good amount of time talking about how improv and comedy can really bring people together in a time when a lot of us seem pretty divided. Anyway, let's just get into it. Ashley was in New York. I was in D.C. Do they want to, like, get a level on you or something, or are you all set?
2: I think he wants to. That would be
0: nice. So, Tell me what you're going to talk about today.
2: Uh, we were going to talk about Full Frontal, which is the name of a TV show. But when I walked in, the guard was like, hey, I like the name of your company. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, it's Sam's fault. She named her show Full Frontal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> was there like a lot of debate about it or she was just like, that's it?
2: I think I was not involved in the show at that point. But I th- the story is like they had gone through so many. And when they got to that one, it just felt Right. Because it was like it's a double entendre, but it also implies like nothing is held back, mm. you know, like the whole truth kind of thing.
0: I like it. I like it. So one, Asher Nicole Black, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so geeked to talk with you. I have had a really fun time like researching you in advance Ooh. of this interview. And in honor of our conversation, I want to play a song just for you.
1: Oh! <laughs> Do you know why I'm playing this?
2: Yes, it's like one of my favorite songs.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's
2: that's one of your favorite songs. It is. Okay. All right. You have this to understand that I was a child.
0: Okay. <laughs> this song is Savage Garden's "Truly Madly Deeply," and I'm playing it because you tweeted today. Quote: Sometimes you're sitting at work barefoot, listening to Savage Garden, thinking. My life turned out just the way I thought it would as a kid. What is that like, what does that mean?
2: I was like I was a very dreamy child. I was very weird. I have very distinct <laughs> memories of like laying on the floor, looking up at the ceiling, listening to this song, and thinking like A, this was the greatest expression of love that had ever been written. <laughs> ever? And- Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And it just fully expressed how I felt about probably the teacher I had a crush on at the time. Oh, snap.
0: What was their name?
2: (laughs) Uh, uh, Mr. McCormick. He knows. (laughs) It was obvious. (laughs) Uh, I think the flop sweat every time he entered a room uh, made it obvious. (laughs) Flop sweat. (laughs) And in my mind, being a grown up was just like never having to wear shoes or, like, eat dinner you didn't want to.
0: Okay. And you've lived that, that life in your adulthood. I've achieved it. <laughs> Look at you. Snaps for the dream. So I want to talk a little bit about your path. Uh, from growing up in SoCal to being on this show. Um, but I want to start with your journey by discussing the fact that you went from a PhD program mm-hmm. to improv. Wow. That yeah, is a very typical route. <laughs> <laughs> what was your PhD going to be in? This was at Northwestern, right?
2: Yeah. So I was in performance studies. You hear that and you think like somebody playing the flute. It's actually a very theoretical discipline.
0: Explain. Um,
2: So I did my master's research on contemporary minstrelsy and sort of tracing tropes from blackface minstrelsy through um, American comedy traditions. Um, Blackface minstrelsy is the first American art form. It's the first thing Americans created for themselves. Oh, my goodness. And so... All comedy that stems from that comes out of that tradition. And so sort of like tracing the different tropes and metaphors and classic joke styles that we still use contemporaneously um, that come from that. Yeah.
0: Does What's the fun? biggest, most noticeable minstrel trope that we might see in the culture today?
2: Um there are a lot of characters. Like even like the nosy neighbor character, which is huh. like a real classic sitcom thing. That yeah. comes from that. Obviously the mammy characters, the Jezebel characters, the ones that are more recognizably
0: minstrelish <laughs> come from yeah. that. Um Olivia yeah. Pope every now and then I'm like, "Girl, you're giving me plantation vibes with these dudes." No.
2: <laughs> well, the the uh, they did do a very explicit reference to Sally Hemings in one episode. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah.
0: Interesting. So you're studying that. Uh, were you doing more of that kind of work in your PhD program after your master's research?
2: Yeah. Um, and also I was studying because I had started to do improv at that time. So I was like trying to live this crazy double life where I would like do comedy shows at night and then like teach and do research during the day. But I just didn't enjoy it. So, yeah. And I was doing sketch. And I sort of found my voice in sketch and realized that like the same topics that I was wrestling with in these super academic papers that I was writing, mm-hmm. I could write a five-minute sketch and, and touch people the scene.
0: and they would laugh at it and they would yeah they and they the would
2: actually want to hear it because yeah. it was fun and funny. No one reading wasn't... the
0: dissertation. Sorry.
2: No, they're literally locked in the library, and you (laughs) can't really get that. Like, it's hard work to get a dissertation if you want to read it, which nobody does. (laughs) Sorry for the (laughs) PhD
0: listeners. We love you and support you and affirm you. You're a part of our community. Um, Now, if I recall correctly, reading up on you, your parents bought you your first improv class as a way for you to, like, take some steam off and take a load off from all the studying.
2: Yeah, I had done improv in high school and in college. And it was always just like a fun thing that people do on the side. Like I never thought of it as like a career or a serious thing. Mm-hmm. So when I was like, you know, so stressed out with school and stuff, they were like, oh, hey, go take a class on Saturdays. Big mistake on their part.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then it all worked out.
2: Yeah, I just immediately I had done everything I had studied opera mm-hmm. I've done classical Thai dance mm-hmm. that's not a joke that's a real thing that I've done you. Um, I've done musical theater ballet like I had tried everything and it wasn't until I started doing improv and sketch that I like found my voice
0: okay and like you like made it work in improv you, you, you were coaching improv you were at second city which is a big friggin deal mm-hmm. um, what was it like to navigate those spaces as you <laughs>
2: Um, it's, like, the best of times, the worst of times. Okay, kind of explain, things. explain. It's, like, on the one hand, it, it Chicago is the best place in the world to learn comedy. It's amazing. Because, one, when you're in Chicago, you're in this little bubble in the Midwest. So whatever mistakes you make... Um, the accidental racist joke or whatever there isn't like a casting director sitting in the audience <laughs> oh, when you do that you know what i mean okay. you get to have yeah. your time to like fail and grow as an artist kind of mm-hmm. tucked away yeah. um and it the entire city is doing comedy like you'd be on the bus or on the train and people are talking about their comedy class or you know the, trying to figure out the second turning point to their scene oh, wow. one of my favorite things is like i'd always be in a restaurant and a guy would be bragging to his date about how he worked at second city and i'd be like no you don't I work there every day. No, you don't. But that happens. Would you
0: ever call them out? No. <laughs> I'd be like, excuse me, sir. Excuse me, ma'am. You Damn, should know. You need to know
2: something. <laughs> so it's the best. It is the okay. absolute best place to grow as a comedian. Okay. And it is such a hard place to be a person of color.
0: Why? I mean, and
2: also I had moved from Los Angeles, so. Uh-huh. Um, moving from los angeles to the midwest was like going back in time a little bit
0: and you were like Um, in a place in socal that was relatively racially diverse right incredibly
2: um i grew up in walnut which is like near it's Right on the border of Juana, West Covina, which is where Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is set. West Covina! Yes. I love
0: Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. <laughs> so, and it
2: really is like that. Like, it really huh. is this utopia, like, where there are people of so many different races and mm-hmm. socioeconomic backgrounds, mm-hmm. and I, you know, very naively just didn't have a ton of racial issues growing okay. up. I got to grow up very easy in that regard.
0: Yeah. You know, it's weird. Like, I grew up probably, gosh, five to ten Well. I went to middle school and high school in an area that was really close to an Air Force base. Mm-hmm. And the military is a really big diversifying force. Yeah. Like, so the schools that I went to near the base, they were just really diverse. And I had friends of all colors and it was just like not a thing. And I was, and I'm from San Antonio and that city is two thirds Latino. So like, I didn't really experience a lot of negative aspects of race. So I like kind of like got out of South Texas, strangely enough, you know, it was weird. Yeah.
2: And then it's like, oh, my God, this is what they were talking about. Uh huh. I don't know if you're similar, but, like, I thought my parents were a little crazy because they'd be like, oh, racism, blah, blah,
0: blah. Oh, I like, yeah. Oh, no, they would, like, give you the warnings. <laughs> yeah. They would always be like, you got to watch out and this and that. And you're like, no, it's fine. My are friends are purple about? and blue and red. It's great. <laughs> and then.
2: <laughs> Luckily, I remembered those lessons.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you're in Chicago and you experience some of this racial weirdness for the first time. Give me an example of that.
2: I mean, it's just like the thing where you pitch a scene and the person you're pitching has no idea what you're talking about. Mm. Um, Like, it's funny, you mentioned Scandal. Everybody watches Scandal. Scandal is huge. I once pitched a scene where, like, the women watch too much Scandal and they start acting like Olivia Pope at the PTA meeting or whatever. And the first question was, so what's Scandal? And I was just like, I can't. Like, when you turn in a scene, we're talking jokes, we're talking scene structure, we're talking budget, whatever. If yeah. I have to start by telling you what the number three show on television is, yeah. we have a cultural divide. Like, that's so much more work than someone who, you know, isn't a person of color, doesn't have to do yeah. to do their comedy.
0: Is I mean, I feel like it's the job of a comic, of a writer, to know the culture. And the fact that these dudes wa- don't want to know that scandal is a thing, I'm just like... Did they feel lazy to you?
2: Well, the crazy thing to me always was that the audience always knew. And Mm -hmm. so my, like, kind of double life in Chicago was, like, I would have a hard time getting things past gatekeepers Mm. um, because of cultural differences or just because I was, like, way more um, political or more woke. I made... Hand quotes when I said it, but you guys can't see me. Um, I have this theory
0: that woke is about to be dead as a word.
2: Yeah, it was declared dead very recently, I think. (laughs) Someone over 60 said it, and we were like, we're done. (laughs) It's it. Shut it down. (laughs) Um, But I never had that trouble with audiences. Like, audiences will go with you wherever you take them as Mm. long as you're funny. Mm. So it was a great learning experience for me to learn, like, okay, this is what I have to do to get something made. And also another great thing about Chicago is you're performing live in the Midwest, you know, Mm -hmm. with CBS watchers are your audience and you're directly communicating with them every night of the week. Yeah. So you learn the audience really well.
0: Did anything about your upbringing in a pretty diverse part of the country, did that inform how you reacted to those scandal moments?
2: Yeah, I was always shocked. Like, I remain shocked, I think, just because I was raised that way. Even though I'm, like, an adult who has experienced a lot of these things in my life, I'm still shocked every time. But, yeah, I'm definitely definitely always like, oh, no,
0: this isn't really happening. (laughs) So what do you say in those moments?
2: Um, As I've gotten older, I've gotten better at, like, calmly because you never have any emotion about it right because then mm-hmm. you are the stereotype then you're the
0: angry black whatever yeah yeah I mean, but mm-hmm.
2: like calmly being like oh i don't think you meant this but when you said that it sounded like this and most people are like oh my god really um mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you know for the most part very few people are actually trying to be ass- most yeah. people are doing something they think is normal
0: mhm mhm did improv pay the bills
2: so i taught improv and sketch writing. And eventually that paid the bills.
0: Give me like a quick 20-second down and dirty improv lesson.
2: Um, oh, wow. So one of the things everyone knows this term, yes and, right? Yeah, yeah. That when you're improvising, whatever information you get, you accept it, you say yes, and you add something to it, and. Um, and one of the things that students will end up doing is only ever saying yes, because they think that accepting the information means accepting it positively. Mm. So a character will be like, hey, do you want to eat dirt? And you can see the actor going, oh no, I have to say yes to eating dirt. And you don't. You can say no to that, because no human being (laughs) wants to do that. (laughs) Saying yes doesn't mean yes to what the person is suggesting. It means accepting the reality they've created. So if they're holding out their hand to you and pretending there's dirt in it, saying yes just means, yes, there's dirt in your hand, but you're allowed to say, and no, I don't want to eat it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Radical acceptance. Yeah. (laughs) I want to talk about your style of comedy. Um, I find it so interesting. (laughs) Uh, You said once that your comedy is, quote, Feminist and upbeat, but with a deep undercurrent of sadness. And I was like, oh, my God, it's like a Robin song. Like All of Robin's songs are upbeat. But yes. if you hear the lyrics, you're like, oh, this girl's talking about a breakup. Yeah. What gave you that style? Uh, it seems to work.
2: <laughs> um, I think when I started, it was just feminist and sad and people would laugh, but you really have to sell that to people. Because they're, they're like, are you okay? I actually one time was doing a show and the director's note was like, you need to show people that you're okay. Oh, my. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, nobody wants to laugh at someone who's suffering, even if it's funny. They're like, oh, no, you might not be okay. Um, um, so I had done this one piece that, like, the first time I did it, it got the craziest response of anything I'd ever done.
0: Can you give a summation of, of what that was?
2: Yeah, so it's me. I'm like
0: um, playing a ukulele. Yeah, so I watched this video actually before the interview. This is a skit you do called Cute, right? We should play some of that so folks can hear it.
2: Look at me, I am Playing the ukulele Look at me, I am Demanding all your attention at my hair, bow. it's so pretty, even though some things are only cute when white girls do them.
0: This was powerful, so you keep singing the song. And as the song goes on, the examples of things that you say that white girls can do and it's cute but no one else can do become more and more kind of epic. What was it like? Towards the end of the song, I'm trying to think of what examples you were using.
2: I know one of them is like stealing a car. (laughs) Um.
0: (laughs) And like even in the video that you made about this song, there's like white women actors like in the audience becoming offended. Like when you did this thing live. That what was what was really reaction? happened. Yeah. Really?
2: Really? Yeah. And this is, like, one of the things that I learned, again, when I'm saying Chicago's so great. I got to do that the first time I did it, an open mic with, like, 10 people at it. And it wasn't there yet. You know what I mean? So it was mm. just offensive. Mm. <laughs> and then <laughs> you're like, okay, I see what worked and what didn't work. And, like, I really, if you hear the whole piece it's really sung out of solidarity with white women. Cause I feel like my frustration as a black woman is that cuteness is not available to me, but mm. also cuteness is sometimes the only thing available to white women and they're and not it's limiting. seriously. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, we both have a problem, right? So it was like finding that balance of like saying the things that annoy me, but also saying, and I'm on your side in the fact that like patriarchy is limiting us both. Um, You know, it takes time and repetition to, like, you know, you're changing one line at a time, changing the way you sing it, changing the music to find that, like, perfect balance.
0: It's hard, though, because the thing is, it's like when you talk about race in comedy, you got to get to the meat of the thing pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And so you end up having these conversations about white girls or black people or this or that. And as soon as you go there, someone's like... Well, not all white women. Well, not all this or that. And not. And it's like, no, I'm not saying all. I'm just saying I'm using this frame to like tell you a story and to make a point. Like, do you increase it? Like, I feel like I still encounter that when I talk about race in my work.
2: Yeah. And, and I a lot of the time tend to ignore that because there are things that are universal things like yeah. women struggling with their femininity and like the idea of cute versus serious. That's pretty universal. Yeah, and even right. if you are a woman who feels like, well, not all women. I don't think about that at all.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Maybe you've gotten to that point, but when you were thirteen, you thought about it. So, like, it's okay. Or if you're saying like something is racist, I have moments where I think racist things. Yeah, it's not. There's no not all. Every single one of us. We live in a racist culture. We are fish swimming in a racist stream. Come Every on. single one of us has a moment where we are racist. That's okay. You don't need to yell. It's not me. It is you. And it's fine. No one's attacking you. I'm trying to make you laugh. I'm Mm -hmm. trying to do something nice to you. (laughs) You Yes.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes. No, it's so it's so true. And like this is the thing that I think a lot of the current conversation about race, it is incomplete if it's a. I'm not a racist because I did X Y Z, but they're racist because they did X Y Z. It's like, no, we're all part of this racist like power structure that it that informs so much of what we do, whether we think about it or not.
2: Yeah, and a lot and of feel-
0: folks don't want to conceptualize it that way.
2: Yeah. From a comedic standpoint, either as a performer or as an audience member, you don't get to the laugh until you go through the uncomfortable part. Mm -hmm. Laughter is a release of tension. So you have Mm. to have tension. So Mm. if I can't make you uncomfortable, I can't make you laugh. And when you immediately yell, not me, you stop Mm. at the discomfort and you miss the opportunity to release and get to the laugh part.
0: You are listening to It's Been a Minute
2: with Sam Sanders.
0: We're talking with Emmy Award winner Ashley Nicole Black, comedy writer for a little show called
2: Full Frontal with Samantha B.
1: Woohoo. BRB. We'd like to thank our sponsor who brings you this message, Discover Card, who alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites. Discover believes that there are some things that you just need to know. It's just another way Discover looks out for you, not just your account. And best of all, social security alerts are free for Discover card members. All you have to do is sign up online. Learn more at discover.com slash free alerts. Limitations apply. Support also comes from Google Cloud Platform. Use machine learning at scale to build better products. Google Cloud's AI provides modern machine learning services that enables you to easily build models and work on any type of data of any size. Their platform is now available as a cloud service to bring unmatched scale and speed to your business applications. It predicts so your business can thrive. To learn more, visit cloud.google.com. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of the TED Radio Hour. And if you're looking for a new
0: podcast, check out the TED Radio Hour. Every week, we explore what it means to be human. We go on a journey through the big ideas, emotions, insights, and discoveries that fill all of us with wonder. You can find it on the NPR One app or however you get your podcasts. All right, we are back with Emmy Award winner Ashley Nicole Black. She won that Emmy for her writing on Full Frontal with Samantha B. Congrats, Ashley. How does it feel?
2: Um, I mean, I'm still processing it. Like, I was on a phone call recently and the woman was like, oh, it'd be great to have a Emmy-winning writer there. And I was like, do you know one? Like, I didn't you know that she was that talking were...
0: about me. <laughs> <laughs> Did it change everything or was it just like, all right, got to go back to work tomorrow?
2: Uh, yeah, it changed everything for a week. I think like okay. most comedians join me in being anxious and having very low self-esteem. And so I learned that an Emmy buys you a week of self-esteem and then your brain is like, we're done. <laughs> You're garbage <laughs> again.
0: <laughs> yeah. So one of the big things I noticed in researching the show and kind of the ethos of, of Full Frontal is that it is a team grounded in diversity, centered mm-hmm. by women and people of color. What is that like? Because a lot of times in these writers' rooms for shows like this one, that's not the case.
2: Yeah. it's. I mean, this is the only TV show that I've worked on, um, so I can't compare it to another show, but it's Mm -hmm. amazing. It's so Mm -hmm. great to like have all your references get gotten, or if people don't get your references, they have the trust in you that they're like, okay, I believe you that this is funny. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but it's structurally sound, and I'll take your word for it. Um, And, you know, it's still a workplace. But because we are grounded in that when there's moments where as a woman, I could say, hey, you just interrupted me and I was talking and and that's okay." It's not like, oh, she's a crazy shrew. It's like, oh, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Please finish your sentence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's a really nice workplace.
0: (laughs) Did you try out for other shows before Full Frontal and how did you find out about applying for for Full Frontal?
2: Yeah, I had written a couple of packets before Full Frontal, but a friend of mine had actually been invited to apply to the show through his manager, Uh and um, he was like, this isn't for me, this is for you, like, you would be Mm. so great at this, so he passed it on to me. Um, So, yeah, I turned in a packet. I didn't have representation at the time, and a lot of shows will not read unrepresented packets, so I was just hoping it would even get read, let alone get the job. Um, I was so shocked to get the job. And I had two weeks to move to New York. It was so crazy. Oh,
0: man.
2: Um, And then I got to the show and I was like, oh, everyone here has done TV before. Everyone's so much more experienced than me. Can I do this? And just when I got to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm a TV writer. I feel comfortable. Sam was like, hey, do you want to be on camera? I was like, ah! (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot of trust.
0: (laughs) What I love about your work on the show is that you go to these environments and talk to people from all across the political spectrum, including people that you might not think would want to open up to someone like you, Mm -hmm. and then they open up. It seems as if the work you're doing to get them to open up is very intentional. What is your process with that?
2: i think coming out of improv helps me a lot like you know people always joke they're like how do you practice to improvise but when you're learning to improvise what you're practicing is you're learning to open and to mm. be open and what is actually a very scary situation you don't have a script you don't know what's going to happen and you're mm-hmm. in front of either you know five people or 800 people you know who knows yeah. i've performed in both scenarios yeah. um And so you learn to be open and to listen and to listen with a deepness that humans do not normally do. Um, Mm. When I am on stage listening to my partner, I know what is happening in every single molecule of their body. I've done shows where someone opened a trapped door and I walked into it without looking because I knew that person was going to take care of me. I've done shows where we've looked at each other and said the exact same sentence at the exact same time, knowing that the other person was going to do it. It's just a level of listening that you have to train to do. And people aren't used to being listened to that way. So I think Mm -hmm. when I interview people, um, I do a lot of work to make them feel comfortable. um, But I think a big part of it is just like, oh, you're really listening to me. And and the first couple minutes of every interview is someone like saying what they think you want to hear or saying talking points or saying Mm -hmm. like what they always wished someone would say on TV. But I think once they realize that like, oh, no, I really want to know what you think as an individual and, and you're looking for those little cues to see where they're holding back and to encourage them to, you know, go down that road a little bit or whatever. And I think people just appreciate being listened to.
0: Yeah. So what I hear you saying is improv performers of the world should lead some seminars on how we can talk to each other about politics yeah it seems I'd, like this would help
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah I, I really feel I mean this is like so hippie but I really feel like the world would be a better place if everybody took an improv class um, uh-huh. because you learn to listen to each other and you also learn to listen to yourself and to follow your fear instead of run away from it and you'll find yourself doing things that you never knew you were capable of doing you don't have to be funny to do mm-hmm. improv, um, you're really there to learn how to live in the world in a different way.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, it's so true. It's funny. I mean, I I covered the campaign for NPR before this show, and I was at a ton of different rallies, Democrats, Republicans, whatever, and I was surprised a few months in, like, if you just show them that you're actively listening, it doesn't matter who they are where they're from, they're probably going to open up to you.
2: Yeah, because I think people... Uh, The Internet has made us so sure that we know everything about, you know, a person and so quick to insult or ridicule. And um, when people see me, you know, I'm at the convention. I'm obviously a young black woman. I have pink hair. They're like, oh, I know you. You're going to make fun of me or you're going to say this mean thing to me. You think I'm this kind of person. And just approaching them with, I want to know what kind of person you are. I don't assume. Tell me. I think allows people to open up and then still being challenging. Like um, people will say things and you can tell that it's something they heard on TV before and asking that question, do you really think that or what about this? Or have you really thought about what that would mean three steps down the line and getting people to the point where they're actively thinking and and Mm -hmm. engaging and questioning instead of just repeating a thing is Mm -hmm. so interesting.
0: Do you ever go into those conversations that we end up seeing on the show Trying to change some of those folks' minds.
2: No, that doesn't seem possible. Okay. And it's also not my job. My job yeah. is to make people laugh. The only thing that sometimes I wish I could do is not to change anyone's opinion, but sometimes people are wrong about the fact. There. Sometimes I feel a little bit of frustration that I can't just be like, no, actually Obama was born in Hawaii. <laughs> like. <laughs> Um, but yeah, if, if there's ever any, I never want to change anyone's opinion, but if I'm ever frustrated, it's sometimes I wish that I could correct people on the facts. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. cause you, you, your opinion should come from reality.
0: Do you think that the show itself in its full form when it airs serves a role or a place in changing minds though?
2: I don't think so. Okay. Um, because, uh, for one thing, The media landscape has become so bifurcated that it is very, very hard to get someone who disagrees with you to see your work. So in that sense, no. Um, no, no. I I think that it can help people solidify their opinion or if people are feeling put upon or downtrodden and it can help them feel like they're part of a community and they're not alone. um, I think and actually studies have been done on this. Your best hope of changing someone's opinion is when you're telling them about something they don't know very much about. Mm. And so in the sense that sometimes we introduce issues that people didn't know about, like we did a piece about child marriage. We did a piece about uh, Catholic hospitals and how they deal with maternity care, um, Mm. that kind of stuff. You can help someone solidify an opinion that was very loose because they didn't know a lot about the issue.
0: Do you feel a pressure because of who you are when you're doing this kind of work. You know, there was one quote that you, uh, it was in something I read about you that really stuck with me. Um, You wrote, my body has historically been a symbol for a stereotype. When I write for myself, I can enjoy combating that or commenting on it or making fun of it or ignoring it completely. But no matter what, I know that I'm in charge of how my body is being used to tell a story. And so you're in charge, but do you also feel a pressure to s- tell a certain kind of story for the uplift of other black women?
2: No, because I'm not capable of not doing that. So it's never like, oh, I have these two ideas and one of them is better for the culture. I just didn't have that other idea. Like, my, you know, my brain doesn't yeah. come up with that. <laughs> um, so I think that the reason why I love comedy and sketch comedy is that It allows me to play a lot of different characters. And Mm -hmm. even on this show where I really only play one character, you know, I meet uh, people who have a certain view in their mind of people who look like me. And then I have a conversation with them and they find out that I, first of all, talk like this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely sound like I'm from Orange County because I am. Um, you know, I know everything about the subject we're talking about because that's my job too. I'm a professional woman. And so I don't need to do any work other than be me to, um, to combat that stereotype.
0: Yeah. Are you hopeful about the state of our political discourse? I mean, so much of the work you do is trying to get folks to talk about politics constructively. Are you hopeful about more constructive conversations happening in everyday life across America, or are we are we in a place that we're going to be in for a while?
2: I really go back and forth because yeah. when I have individual conversations with people, um, you know, like I said, I've never changed anyone's opinion. That's never been my goal, but I do have good, positive, constructive conversations with ninety five percent of the people that I talk to, yeah. um, and for the most part, people are even if they came in super, super sure in their belief, they're willing to at least listen to another human being when that per- when that person is directly in front of them. But we sort of don't have time for, like, comedians to individually talk to every single person in America. Yes, <laughs> and you do, like... <laughs> Ashley. Just
0: believe in yourself. Get out there and talk to
2: America. I feel like we're running out of time. Um, <laughs> and as far as mass communication goes news, TV shows, the internet, that is not working. The way that we are communicating with each other on a mass scale is not working. We're only getting pushed further and further and further apart. And, you know, a lot of the conversation right now is about, like, Russia trying to divide us, and they definitely are doing that, and it definitely has an effect. But the only reason it's working is because we are all collectively in a space right now where we are willing to be divided. And I count myself in that same number. Like, I struggle with myself all the time. And I read something and I'm just like, that guy's the worst. And <laughs> that's my take, you know, and uh-huh. not being compassionate or trying to see the other side of the issue or whatever. We're all in that space. Mm. Um, and so I, I don't know how you solve that problem when half the country has one set of facts and the other half has a second set of facts and neither of them ever look at the other side
0: mm. i
2: just don't know how you solve. how do you solve it
0: improv yeah <laughs>
2: everyone <laughs> takes an improv class
0: yeah yeah so much fun that was ashley nicole black she's a correspondent and writer for the hit late night tv show full frontal with samantha b you can watch that show on wednesday nights on tbs As always, we're back in your feeds on Friday. Make sure to share the best thing that happened to you all week. Send me a recording of your own voice to samsanders at npr.org. And a reminder, depending on where you live, you can hear our podcast on the radio now as well. Make it a part of your weekend routine. Go to npr.org slash stations to find out if the show is on near you. All right, that's a wrap. I'm Sam Sanders. Thanks for listening. Talk soon.